Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick, CEO at Resolve Asset Management Global. Our very special guest today is Andrew Beer, Managing Member at Dynamic Beta Investments, one of the oldest firms doing liquid alts. His firm's mission is to roll out ETFs that look like hedge funds, except with full transparency, liquidity, and none of the high fees. What he and his colleagues do is in a unique and fascinating dimension, bringing Jack Bogle's philosophy to the hedge fund space. If you're looking at all at liquid alts or managed futures and want to learn more about how these things work, stay tuned. You'll find this to be an enlightening and insightful conversation. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Andrew, it's terrific to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, Andrew, to kick things off, tell us about the arc of your career, how you wound up in the investment management business. Well, it, it, it wasn't obvious at all, actually. <laughs> um, I, uh, I went into, uh, I graduated from college and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and uh, ended up going to work for as an M&A investment banker in New York. And then I went back to business school and I started to get interested in, actually, I thought I was going to go into the LBO business. Um, back then, all the cool, smart kids ended up going into the LBO business, and and uh, I wanted to be part of that. And then uh, in my second year at Harvard Business School, I ended up meeting this guy. I got re actually recruited to go on an interview with this guy uh, named Seth Klarman, and he was one of the early generation of hedge fund guys. And I walked in not knowing what a hedge fund was, but these guys you know, just drilled me with questions for about an hour and they seemed incredibly smart and they were doing, you know, all the things that they were doing seemed really esoteric and interesting. And I was kind of hooked. And so I, I went there. Um, I was a, ended up being a, a generalist portfolio manager for about three years and then ended up leaving. And since the late 1990s, I've been starting and running my own businesses in different areas of originally the hedge fund space and then more recently, and as you mentioned, in the liquid alternative space. So Seth Klarman, wow. Let's talk about your time at Baupost a little bit. Seth Klarman, author of Margin of Safety, the the little book that cost two thousand dollars on Amazon. I, I think I think I still have mine with with uh, with bonafide fingerprints on it, so I should get a premium for uh, absolutely uh, for it. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, Seth, Seth is absolutely brilliant, yeah. and and it, you know, it was a privilege to work for him. Um, I think you know, I think even though he's considered a hedge fund manager, his firm was not so much a hedge fund as it was more of a multifamily office that he wasn't, you know, this was the early days of hedge funds. When I joined, they had 600 million in assets and they were probably one of the 10 largest hedge funds out there. Uh, uh, three years later when I left, it had a billion eight. Yep. And you know, again, I had zero to do with that growth. It was all about people realizing that hedge funds were doing things that were really unique and arcane and interesting. And, and what I got, had an opportunity to do was to walk into the office every day and, you know, with a blank sheet of paper and say, you know, what do we do now? How do we find things that are cheap? And, you know, in retrospect, looking back on it, um, it's just incredible how much the markets have changed since then. The things that that we were doing back then, I did some of the first um, purchases of limited partnership interest and in secondary transactions. There was no developed market for it. 
and we were buying them at 25 cents on the dollar. But you'd have to do months and months of work with not a whole lot of information available and negotiate it and go out and find them. It was always, but, and you could put a couple of million dollars to work, but the discounts were huge. And then, you know, I think one of the great lessons is here we are nearly 30 years later and just everything is more efficient. You know, the, that, that, that the idea that you can kind of find things that are just utterly obvious investment, uh, uh, it, it, it's much, much harder, much more competitive today. I would agree with that. But, and, and so, um, on what dimensions do you, do you look at that? How, how have you kind of looked at that dimensionality of competitiveness? Is it the efficiency of the markets, the efficiency of the information, the, just the absolutely massive amount of IQ that's being put at these problems to solve them? Is it all of those things? Am I, am I missing a couple? What, what's been your experience? You know, so I think, I think it's across the board. I think, I think, um, yeah, I got asked a couple of years ago to write a book about what's changed in the past 25 years. And when I sit down to do that, I will uh, uh, be able to articulate it much more clearly than I can right now. But but, um, but take take the value factor, right? I mean, so I, I joined in 1994. Obama uh, had published his paper, I think, two years earlier. So I, w- I was aware of it. And I almost went into the doctoral program at Harvard Business School. Um, actually, the guy who convinced me not to go into the doctoral program was the head of the doctoral program, who said, "You'll hate it." So, so <laughs> he kicked me back into the into the private sector, and I'm I'm very glad that he did. Uh, but you know, but I knew about the value factor, and I go and I work for Seth, and the first thing I do is I try to do screens of publicly traded companies. It wasn't easy to do then, you know. I mean, where do you get the information from? You could get it from FactSet, but the FactSet data was lousy. You could, you know, Bloomberg was was in the in its infancy relative to what you can do today. Um, the whole idea of even factors was very novel. I mean, these are papers that had just been published. And but in terms of, you know, just just and I would actually compare 1994 to the late 60s through 1990, which is the period that Fama studied, the, the kinds of stocks that he was talking about were gone. They'd all been bought, LBO'd, recapped. And, and in a sense, what he had described was a period of time that had passed. Right. That, that, you know, the idea that there was some company that was, had some lousy manufacturing business but happened to own a third of downtown Atlanta that was priced at cost because they'd owned it since 1901, that company didn't exist. And, and the really interesting question is why that factor did what it did for so long. And again, so my job was relatively easy compared to imagine trying to do it in 1978. You're picking up, you're dialing on your rotary phone to call information in Boise, Idaho, to get the number of a company. You call the company, you ask for investor relations. They put an annual report in 10K in the mail. You get it two weeks later. You know, you're using the Wall Street Journal to get recent price information. You're doing everything on the back of an envelope. This is why when you hear about Warren Buffett sitting in his attic and reading annual reports all day long, it's it's because there was no other way to get that information. And so, you know, so when you compare that period and then now you you fast forward to today, what I see in the market is, you know, when an idea becomes popular, it gets adopted very, very quickly. People pile into it. You know, the dissemination of information is, is almost instantaneous. That makes it makes it harder. Certainly. And so, yeah, so you've got you've got um, the the dissemination of information across all of these uh, uh, users of the information. 
and then the implementation of that more quickly. So where where can an investor find an edge? Where is it that um, what are what are the top places that those edges have gone away or been attenuated to some degree? And whether we're systematic with um, um, in in some of the things that we do, you're systematic or not systematic. You're laying you know the 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 expertise of an individual human and their wetware to make decisions. So. What are the edges that are left for for the investor to pursue? Sure, I, I think the two big ones are are um, are constraints and heuristic biases. Uh, that you know, a, a typical investor does not want to stray too far from the pack. And so, you know, when I talk to a pension plan that you know it feels like they're over their going over their skis into EM, they're going from five to seven percent. Um, hedge funds do it; they'll go from five to thirty-five percent. So, so you know, the the absence of constraints is one of the, um, you know, you you cannot take an incredibly talented investor, tell them that, you know, they great take a great mixed martial artist and tell them they can't use you know one of their fists and both of their feet and expect them to do very well in the ring. Um, and then the other is heuristic biases, and so. You know, the reason I got really interested in, in managed futures in this space is because I think it solved one of the problems that people have in their portfolios is that is that there is a common heuristic bias that permeates most investment decisions. And managed futures, because these are robot strategies that have no emotions, they tend to not have those same biases and therefore add a, a really, really compelling element of returns. Right, so that systematic or rules-based approach where you're okay. looking at the data through specific lenses and it doesn't matter how you feel or how you woke up this morning or whether your mom, mom wife yelled at you and your kids are <laughs> crying and everybody's sick, like you're still going to make the decisions over and over again and yeah. uh, you're, you hope to have some sort of edge. Now, what do you think about from the perspective of over the last 10 years, save the last six months, the other thing that's been fairly difficult for those who are in the multi-asset space, not so not just CTAs, but those considering large swaths of assets beyond just sort of, you know, technology or U.S. equities, this lack of dispersion seems to me to have been a particularly challenging environment to produce differentiated returns. That seems to be attenuating. But what are your thoughts there? I think... I guess, I guess as a guy who lives in factor land, um, I think there's been tremendous dispersion. It's just been the worst kind of dispersion. When, when the S&P 500 becomes dominated by tech stock mm -hmm. and that dominates every other market and that everyone's essentially the equivalent of their home currency or their home investment. Again, I'm dealing with you know, predominantly U.S. investors, yeah. but then if you deal with the MSCI world, it's 55 or 60 percent effectively the S&P 500 anyway. Um, I think I think the problem hasn't been dispersion. It's that nothing has worked as well as the basic trade. And so what I think is interesting now, when you think about the 2020s, given the fact that, you know, we thought the rubber band between the U.S. and other markets expanded and we thought it couldn't possibly go any further. And then it expanded further. It couldn't possibly go. And then we get COVID. And, you know, and now it feels like all these expensive tech stocks were going to you know, finally get their comeuppance and value would come back and then it just went completely in the other direction. But I think, but I think all these things do, there is a, a, 
an element of reversion to it. Now, we've had these really, really painful head shakes. About two months ago, or about a month ago, you started to hear people talking about the, you know, the, the revival of emerging markets. Finally, we have emerging markets, and then they've just been run over um, over the past couple yeah. of weeks. But, but I, I do think, um, I do think that a lot of these things, when other asset classes outside of those basic building blocks that are, that dominate sixty forty portfolios, do better over time, then then a lot of the willingness to look at other things starts to to, to to play off, and I think that will I think that will characterize the 2020s. Right. The the dispersion has been one of losses, uh, negative dispersion, or sure. you know whether it's been trend or it's been small cap or it's been international things that would normally diversify the portfolio have diversified the portfolio, but they've diversified it from the standpoint of holding it back, and then you have that sure. loop cycling for a decade which then leads to you know, an overconfidence bias in investors and them seeking more and more of what's worked over the last decade and finally getting so concentrated in one particular area that when that area goes through a decade of lost returns or the lost decade, which happens often, it's happened in US equities a couple of times sure. you know, over the last cycles. And um, it's, a, it's a strange thing. So you know, I would urge investors as, as we're seeing this initial surge in inflation, volatility, and inflation, to start think about thinking about broadening the scope of investors that they're considering in their portfolio. I mean, you know, potentially we're going to print a ten percent CPI this year, and what is in a sixty forty domestic equity portfolio based in the U.S.? What's in that portfolio to offset an inflation spike of that nature? And the answer is not very much. I mean, in 08, no way. Go ahead. I mean, nothing. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> Zero. And, and look, I, I think the 2020s will be a lost decade for 60-40 portfolios. Yeah. You know, we had, we had, it, I mean, that was the problem with the 2010. Was any, people were paid to procrastinate. People were paid to concentrate. And, you know, let me look at a firm like, like GMO, you know, mm -hmm. which made a, a call into EM in 2014. And it's been paying for it for eight years. Um, but, but a lot of this is, you know, a lot of this is, I mean, the, the reason I like replicating hedge funds, I mean, to get to, you know, why do I replicate hedge funds is because, um, uh, yeah, there's always this tension between long-term asset allocation models and, uh, and, and current market environment, you know, like it would be, it would be the ideal thing if we could say we have hundred year capital markets assumptions, with put together a portfolio and everybody goes home and, you know, four generations later, somebody is, is, is happy with the outcome. Um, but, you know, going back to the question about where, where I think you can make money, it's the ability to pivot and change what you do, depending upon market environments, which is not to say it's not hard. But, you know, when we were replicating hedge funds in, um, and by the way, what I mean by replicating hedge funds is we try to figure out what they're doing broadly across their portfolios and just copy it yeah. cheaply. How, I it's not, you know, we're not trying to copy this stock or that stock, but if they are in May of 2020, we see that they're increasing equity risk. Okay, that's interesting because in May of 2020, a lot of people thought the world was, we were never going to reemerge from lockdowns. You know, the, the, the world is going to go to hell and stay awful despite, despite what the Fed was doing. They were increasing equity risk. And then by the fall, it was apparent that the equity risk that they were adding was not going back into Facebook and... Microsoft and Apple, they were buying stuff that had been corrupt, like 
oil and gas companies. When you know oil had gone negative, they were buying retailers. They were buying, and so for us, you know, outside of this kind of paradigm of how you specifically define value, these were cheaper things. And so hedge funds that had been very growthy during a very good time for growth stocks were now becoming very valuable at a very very different time. And I, and I think I think actually, you know, so I'm I'm optimistic about active management, a very particular kind of active management in this world that we're going into or that we are in right now, because because I think, you know, there is no five-year playbook that anybody has, that anybody could be confident that it's going to work out the way you think. Well, I think that the people are positioned generally for what's happened, not what is happening or about to happen potentially. Sure. And, um, and then this comes back to, you know, my point about dispersion, you now have very differentiated returns across a spectrum of, of asset returns, which you're now able to consider that are very different than, you know, the current zeitgeist. So I wonder if you could, we can dig into what's the process yeah. of going through. And I think this is where you were headed Pierre, too, yeah. right? <clears throat> what's the process you've decided it's either, you know, maybe it's long, short, maybe it's market neutral, maybe it's the CTA space and, you know, um, uh, global macro, and, and as you said, you like to be systematic. How do you mm -hmm. go through you know, deciding on what factors to emphasize, or are you just trying to look through the portfolios and duplicate what they hold? How do you go through that process? And maybe take us through an example that you have found is good at sort of giving us an analogy that we can all understand best. Sure. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll go back to the beginning because I yeah. kind of I kind of fell mm -hmm. into this space. Um, so I was super active in my early in my 30s, I had started two different hedge fund businesses that were growing a lot. Um, and then I was sort of known as a guy who got in really, like I got in very, very early in, in China and I got in very, very early in the commodity markets, both starting hedge funds in those areas. And uh, so I got a call and he said, you know, I want you to come be a quant friend of mine. And I go and I sit down. I'm not a quant. I'm a history major. You know, I'm allegedly, I'm decent with numbers, but, but you know, it, it, I don't program. I don't run my own statistical analysis. So I go to meet with a quant and he talks about what he does. I said, I, I don't know how to make sense of that. And then he said, there's this interesting thing called hedge fund replication. And I said, I have no idea what that means, but tell me. And he said, basically, you can use what's essentially a risk model, a, a, you know, a version of Sharpspace style analysis to figure out the major positions among hedge funds and you can invest in them directly. And I said, well, of course. And he said, well, what do you mean, of course? I said, because that's how hedge funds have always made money, right? It, it's not about, you know, which value stock they owned in 2000 and which large cap tech stock that they sorted against it. What mattered was that they were in things that went down. They went down 40, not 50, but they were short things that went down 80, not 50. That's how they preserved capital. And I said, well, let me just ask you, I mean, just in terms of to see if it works or not, what do you see today in the model? And he ran it and he said, and he said, I, he said, almost, it looks like there must be something wrong. It's about 35% emerging markets. And I said, then it's right. It's working. And he said, well, why do you say that? It's because I said two years ago, three years ago, everyone got obsessed with this brick trade. When Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs coined the term yeah. brick, everybody wanted to be involved in emerging markets. Everybody jumped on planes to go to Beijing and Shanghai to see what was going on. People were talking about, um, you know, co the growth of commodities, the growth of the middle class. Every hedge fund that I knew, if they didn't own fertilizer companies to play on this, they owned cement companies. If they didn't own cement companies, they owned 
grain manufacturers. It was all around an EM growth theme. And so here was an industry that had gone from one very distinct bet a few years before, and it pivoted what they'd done. They had, you know, cast off the value versus growth trade and gone into um, and gone into a long brick trade. And then, and then so what you see are these kind of rotations and pivots over time, and they're driven not by generally by somebody at the macro level thing like GMO thing, you know, I think, you know, value stocks are historic. I mean, uh, emerging market stocks are cheap on a, on a, on a PE basis. Rather, it's because, you know, when I talk to hedge funds about it, they're like, look, we, we, we look at the footnotes of these companies. We interview the management teams. But if we like one company that's doing things in Argentina, we fly a team down and then probably we like three or four or five companies. And if we like them in Argentina, we probably like them in Brazil too. And lo and behold, two years later, we've got 20% of our assets in this. So that idea of adaptability, fundamental stock selection, fundamental asset selection, leading to these rotations in factors at, at, at the portfolio level. Now, from my perspective, then, you know, you can either hire lots of expensive hedge funds to do all of that difficult work. But if you can just use a model to decompose what they're doing and figure out that they're long 35% EM and invest in a futures contract to get the same exposure, but for free, and you can charge less to do it, I like that. I, prefer, I think that's a better value proposition. And then how, how does the delay in that impact? I mean, obviously you're not charging the owner's performance fees. Um, the fees are a little lower. So it's not like you have to capture all of the upside in order to match the upside if you're not charging those things. So how do you, how do you find that delay from them positioning your themselves in order for you to uh, suss out that they positioned themselves that way, both on the way in and on the way out? How has that uh, lag in and out been? How do you address it? How does it, how does it affect things? Sure. So, okay. So, so, so in our space, the first thing, and this goes Parkins back to learning at 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 uh, you know at at the at the feet of Seth Klarman. Uh, is first thing is don't do it if you do, if you don't think it's going to work well. So there are a lot of things you could not try to replicate. Right. Right? It's better just go home and, and admit that you can't do it. We cannot replicate Millennium. <laughs> I wish we could, right. and find a way to deliver a two point four star ratio with daily liquidity and low fees. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> so. Um, so there are specific things. We can replicate equity long short. We can replicate managed futures. Um, and then we can replicate very broad-based portfolios of hedge funds. Uh, the delay issue happens, different kinds of portfolios have different speeds associated with them. So another thing you don't try to replicate is you don't try to replicate Fred, the hedge fund manager. You don't try to replicate Ray Dalio right. over here because they will change their mind faster and we won't know it. But... 50 of these guys together, you know, while one guy is thinking that we're on the cusp of World War III and is dialing down risk across his portfolio, there might be another guy in there who thinks this is the great buying opportunity and we're about to see some really positive news. So you replicate large pools of funds to figure out how on average they're changing their, their positions. And in a space like equity long short, they change their portfolio slowly. How do we know this? Because we know how they invest. So if I'm an equity long short guy and I have spent a year researching a company and talking to management and made it, it's now a seven or 8% position in my portfolio. 
and I think this stock is going to double over the next five years. There is not a headline that I can read that is going to cause me to sell that thing tomorrow. It's just not the way I think. I may reduce it at the margin. I may stop buying something else. I may have something that's gone up that I want to that I want to dial back, and I may do some hedging or something at the margin. But going back to your whole thing about heuristic biases, that's a drawback on what these guys do. You know, when once you own something and you put all of that work into it, it's very very hard to turn on a dime. And so, equity long short the portfolios move slowly. Broadly across the industry, they move slowly. Managed futures move fast. And so managed futures, we can't rebalance once a month. We need to rebalance at least once a week. And we're always looking back at these kind of, you know, really what happened over the past few weeks to guide us as to where we should be positioned today. Doesn't matter what they were doing six months ago. And, and on the, on the, so a couple of questions. Yeah. So for both of these types of, of uh, approaches, how is it that you think about the, the risk management along the way? So you've got this indicator, you've got to put a trade on, you've got to set some risk mitigation around that, both as you said, trimming it on the upside or eliminating it on the downside. Um, and and you, in the, in the equity space, you haven't really done the work, right? So it's you're mimicking the work from somebody else or the group of people. You're polling a group of portfolio, man, portfolio managers and you're getting a, Here's here's on average what we like, and so how how do you how does that is there sort of set criteria within in the rules of each portfolio that you've systematically managed that you're going to equal weight or do you take some sort of weight based on um, the percentage weight that you're getting from the managers how, how do you handle that and I want to have some CTA questions sure. as well. Sure. So, um, the basic framework is we're inheriting all of their risk management. I see, okay. Right, if, you're, if you have 50 equity long short funds or 20 managed futures funds, you will have a cowboy who will drive mm -hmm. off the cliff. I'm mixing metaphors, but you get, you, 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 you get the idea. It's a good mixed metaphor, though. I'm the mixed metaphor guy, <laughs> yeah. so they speak okay. to me. Yeah. So I, um, I totally knew what yeah, you meant. So, <laughs> so, so look, I mean, you'll, you'll have wild guys, but when you do a, a um, you know, like in the managed future space, you'll have you might have one guy who's a fifteen vol, but you'll have sure. other guys who are lower vol, and and they all have their own businesses to manage. So, you know, what you don't get when you're looking at the managed future space, you don't see okay, we're all one hundred and ninety percent short the ten year treasury, and that's mm -hmm. all that we have, um, because each one of them has their own position limits, diversification criteria, var limits, etc. When you get into there are a lot of practical issues when managing things in the context of an ETF in the U.S or a unit fund in Europe. Um, uh, you know, we also manage a product in Japan. We manage one in Spain. Each one of these has structural nuances and constraints. And fortunately, I have a partner who is genius caliber at this stuff, so I can remain blissfully ignorant and just see that it works the way um, uh, we would suspect. But, but in all seriousness, I mean, that's, that's where you get into the issues. The thing is that most you know, a bona fide hedge fund strategy that has illiquid assets, illiquid thing, you know, big derivative positions, et cetera, has a very, very hard time getting jammed into a mutual fund that I yep. assume is the same oh, thing yes. in Canada. So, so you end up losing a lot. I actually wrote a paper about this in 2013 that, that lower fees relative to hedge funds um, uh, was actually a red herring because if you're losing so much of the pre-fee returns and then making a little bit back on fees, 
you were still coming out, uh, you know, way, way behind. And, um, and so what we do basically is we, we start our whole, um, someone once described us as unique in the liquid alternative space in that we have consistently done better than actual hedge funds, but with low fees, daily liquidity, uh, less downside risk, et cetera, you know, being able to make it work in a usage fund. So how do you do that? Well, first, first thing you do is you aim for their pre-fee returns because in hedge funds, people have been railing about fees for a long time. It, it's very uneven across the industry, but they really haven't come down as much as you would think. You know, if, if you if you said, here's an entire space that did, let's say, 4% in the 2010s after 300 basis points in fees, you would have thought there might have been more competition around it. But in reality, some people are raising fees and a lot of people, some people are lowering fees a lot. But we coined a term back in 2011 that in hedge funds, fee reduction is the purest form of alpha. And what basically meant was that if I invest at 1 and 5 and you invest in 2 and 20, I'm always going to win. Like in the U.S. retail space, it would be if I invest in an, in, in an institutional share class with a 100 basis point expense ratio and you invest in a retail share class with a 5% upfront load, right. guess who's going to win over time? Well, all things so, being equal, right? We, yeah. we, have, we, have to, we have to determine that we're receiving the same value, that we have the same vol count. Like this is another thing. Fees yeah. are, should be subject to some sort of vol filter because, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm manufacturing a 20 vol CTA, well, you only have to buy mm -hmm. half as much as if I manufacture a 10 vol CTA. So I have to have half the AUM. So potentially I should be charging a higher fee for that differentiated return source. You get more real estate into your portfolio. And sometimes that's a benefit. These are all things that individuals have to make as decisions along the way. Sure. So, so Millennium, I'm, I'm, I'm the only guy. I mean, I defend Millennium's 800 basis points in fees. Because if somebody can take a dollar and and make make it turn into 10 that works yeah. without blowing yeah. up over 30 years they deserve yep. 800 basis points like that's not that's not on a and, and when we do things that are essentially leverage right. we of charge more. so this is i was just so, trying to so, add a little bit of extra yeah, light yeah. on that yeah sure but when you're when you're talking about an industry where 80 percent of the alpha has been paid away mm -hmm. in fees over 10 years for us it's it's a pretty low bar so our goal is generally, if we can replicate 90% of the pre-fee returns of a hedge fund portfolio, charge less, we'll do about 200 basis points over time. And, and back Better. to your question about what's the risk yeah. characteristic yeah. of what we do versus what they do, um, we tend to actually show lower risk over time because hedge funds, some of those things that people talk about and tout with hedge funds as having great alpha-like characteristics, illiquid assets. So in 2019, if you'd said to a big fund of funds, what's your favorite area of hedge funds? They probably would have said structured credit because they were getting, you know, six or 7% returns with almost no visible volatility. Well, it turns out that stuff was really illiquid and really highly leveraged. And in the first quarter of 2020, it went down 20, 25%. Some funds went down 50% and, and gated investors. So illiquid assets can have huge downside characteristics at the wrong time. Single stock positions, the same thing can happen. Single stocks, you know, get crowded. And going back to the point about what's changed, it's no secret anymore who owns stocks. When Tiger Management blew up in 1990, 
1997, or I think it was the fall of 1997, uh, the hottest piece of paper on Wall Street was a list of their positions. The idea that you could pull up 13F filings and find out what Tiger Management was doing didn't exist. It was these were things that were handed underneath the coffee table to <laughs> your best friend, you know, who was XYZ head fund when you worked at XYZ Investment Bank. Um, the so, but now we we, you know, when Bill Ackman owns a stock, there are a million menorah who follow his trade. Not Menorah, Nim yeah. <laughs> Nimora, sorry. <laughs> Menorah. <laughs> Waving the menorahs. <laughs> sorry, Remora. Remora. Remora yeah, yeah. are the small fish that, that, that follow yeah, a uh, that follow yeah, a whale. That, yeah, and they'll and they'll pile into the trade as well. So so when things start to go badly, you get things going down a lot more than you would like. So so ironically, you know, when we think about risk in our portfolios, like we start with the assumption that there's going to be another Lehman, that there are going to be market dislocations, that some counterparty somewhere is going to blow up that, that, that nobody knew. So we don't do anything on the OTC market. We don't do anything with counterparty risk. We don't, we don't do anything with little liquidity risk. All we create are the deepest, most liquid futures contracts and, and have basically U.S. dollar-denominated cash and cash-like instruments. So that's 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 great. That, so yep. so just kind of going back and summarizing a little bit. So on the long short side, the position risk sizing is really a culmination of all those portfolio managers and all their risk management. Yeah. Right. That that's actually yep. really cool. I think that's you know. So you've got somebody who's got large single stock positions. You've got somebody who's being conservative. You've got this bandwidth. You'll have various different levels of vol. Have you considered the the vol sizing of what the output is at all, sort of in conveying that back to investors, or is that sort of no? We're going to let the signals tell us what the vol size should be, maybe maybe with a cap or something like that. But has there been? How do you guys think about that particular part of the equation? So our our, our basic model is we're going to follow what they do. Mm -hmm. That's our job. Um, we have numerous different products that have been built for different generally larger asset management firms who want us to build things for them and then they do all the heavy lifting on that side and we manage the portfolios they sometimes have criteria that they want so we have a fund that we run in europe that has a vol overlay that we that we it, we try to bring it down to a five ball because that's what their investors want um i personally think that as these things you know a lot of those kind of design decisions, I don't, I would, I don't view them as adding value, but rather meeting a constraint that's important to a a a, a population right. of investors for reasons sometimes yeah. that I I don't see. They're bespoke based on their needs and what their requirements are, and that's where the tailoring comes in, and that's why you guys offer that service. Exactly. Now, on the CTA side, are you? Is it any particular factor, or are you are you seeing through to their in order to ga gather, you know, are you looking at commercial speculators, the positioning? Um, is it trend? Is it trend carry? Is it like, what are, are there, are there any things that you're imparting? You're trying to suss out the type of factor that they're using or is it just gross positioning? It's gross positioning. So, so basically, and, and my view, when we looked at this back in 2015, what we were trying to do is, so, my take on managed futures, it's got two great characteristics. 
It tends to have zero correlation to equities and bonds over time, but make no mistake, it goes up and down over time. Right. So you've got to have a multi-year outlook. Otherwise, you'll get whips. I mean, you'll get um, uh, it'll get yep. dizzying watching go up and down. And the other is, is, is it tends to do well in a crisis. Now, now that's a you know something that people love to wave around statistically. It we have two data points, right? We have 2000 to 2002. We have 2008, and then March of 2020. It was okay, but things happened too fast for it to really be borne out. But but as an investor, having been through a lot of these things. Um, going back to the the, the non emotional part of it, uh, what you know, what I I do think that managed futures has a huge competitive advantage right. in a period like that we're in right now, because things just move farther than you expect, and every time it moves a little bit farther, a certain group of investors peel off and think it's going to reverse, and and it just it it's just our wired. Managed futures doesn't care, you know, like it, they don't care what intrinsic value is, they don't care about any of that stuff. The two problems historically from our perspective have been, one, when you lo- layer in all of the fees and expenses of a typical managed future strategy, and I mean a head, flagship hedge fund strategy, it's probably 500 basis points. So when people say, oh, I don't like this space because they were doing two, my response is, no, you picked a space that was doing seven, right. you just paid way too much for it. And then the second is single manager risk. There's zero persistence of returns. I believe there is that that manager selection and manager futures is completely efficient, and by that I mean no one has an edge. The smartest managed futures guy in the world cannot tell you whether medium-term trend is going to do better than short-term trend, whether somebody with a commodity bias is going to do better than somebody with this kind of bias, etc. So, so the only way, and 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 since you have no persistence of returns and huge dispersion, um, I believe that that a Anybody who has the constraint of being able to invest in less than six funds as part of their managed futures allocation uh, could never invest in a single in a single manager fund to fill that bucket. So what we tried to do was basically create a, a product that would reduce risk by diversification across lots of guys. In this case, it's 20 hedge funds. And then generate alpha not by picking who's going to do well, but by eating away at that 500 basis points in fees. And so then the whole, then the whole exercise was, how do you do that? Um, And one of the things I did look, we did look a lot about, I wrote a paper on it was, you know, maybe it's all being driven by trend. And, and so, um, and it was very fashionable in 2015 when we were doing this work for people to say, oh, managed futures, well, it's just trend. Well, what do they mean by that? And so, as we dug into it, if I built a trend model and you built a trend model and Pierre built a trend model, then by the time you end up twisting all of these dials, what markets are we going to use? What look back period, what sizing criteria, what vol criteria you describe, we all end up with wildly different results, even though we're all calling a trend. And so it's almost like if I said, you know, what were the equity returns last year? And you said, um, uh, you know, well, the Golden Dragon, NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index was up this much. And and, and Pierre said, uh, are you kidding me? The E&P, mid-cap E&Ps were up this much. And I said, you guys are, you know, the fangs were up that much. Like, so so if, if we can't all agree on what the underlying beta or factor is in our modeling, then 
then then what it really is is it the average of the people who are employing the active strategies. And so back to so so what we really do is we say we've got lots of really smart guys at managed futures funds who are trying to figure out, you know, is gold going to keep going up? How would I know that as I build my models? Is it going to reverse? What about it relative, you know, is oil at, at reversing or do I care? Is it, is it some, some part of a longer term trend? What about uh, the 10 year treasury? These core positions that one, they're all going to come to somewhat different results, but we're trying to get the average of it. And like with anything that's indexed, like the average is much more stable right. than any of the individual positions. And so, you know, so I think the other thing that we realized back then was that there are only about 10 positions that matter in managed futures. That, that you know, in a certain period of time, like everyone's talking about wheat right now, I doubt wheat is adding more than a couple points of returns to a typical managed futures set fund. Um, uh, on the other hand, gold does matter. You know, gold will, I mean, I mean, sorry, oil will matter a lot this year um, because it'll also be a larger position because the markets are so much more liquid. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot, there's quite a bit to unpack there too. The, the, so I would add that when you employ, let's say you can employ six CTAs, there's a significant challenge with that as well because you have the lack of trade netting, you're paying performance fees in mm -hmm. one manager, whilst in the other manager you have the exact opposite of that trade. Potentially they may have the other trade on, one's long wheat, one's short wheat. Um, and so you're paying one a performance fee on the long side, but you're losing on the other side. Eventually you may sell that loser, thereby abandoning that, that asset, which is the high watermark in which to um, gain some sort of return back. So you have to be very careful here. This has got lots of, lots of dimensionality to it. And I do like the idea that if you're taking all of the trades, this is an interesting way to do the trade netting without having the six different or eight different funds. So that's, that's very interesting. The way we approach it is we do have quite a number of different features and factors. Obviously, we trade net all of that. So you know, if you're long seasonality and, and short on trend, then you're going to be flat that position. And you don't want to take both of those positions. Right. But if you have another manager who's got two different buckets, that's the case. Then, then you would have those trades counter on within your portfolio. Nice thing the way the way you've got it all systematically mm -hmm. boiled down. the The challenge I would find is that there are some features and factors that do work better than others, and they are often not necessarily what is used on average. So, you know, I do think there is still the opportunity for active management well certainly to perform differently and to outperform the challenge is can you identify it before the fact right and that's that's where it gets really hard can you find um seth Klarman amongst all the other managers that started in 1982 <laughs> probably not right that's that's really hard um, at some point though there's some expertise that's identified in the track record and you know that that's that's another other ballgame of what the objective <clears throat> function is of the people who are investing in um, in the strategies. Sometimes it is not to have the best opportunity to make returns. Sometimes it's to gain access to the space that is approved by their consultant. I, I completely agree with you on on on. So we don't solve every problem, right? It's not it. But what I could tell you is I think you put us up against six managed futures, hedge funds, or mutual funds, and I will 
bet you a tiny nickel that in five years yeah, we will so, have done so a couple hundred. You're not, you're not trying to be all better. things, but to all people, and you don't have to be right. And, and yeah, well, I'm no. definitely going to take a nickel <laughs> bet on our fund versus but, the. the I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. We're going to bet dinner on that. It'll be so, a great reason so, to get together. <laughs> It's a, it's a tight, so it's a tight in, in, in a nutshell, of, of like, in a nutshell Andrew, your Vantage um, Futures uh, ETF basically aggregates the strategies, the multiple strategies of 20 CTAs. And then uh, you, you, you manage to get the average outcome of all the CTAs in, in the ETF. But the, the most important distinction of all that is that you're not collecting the management fees of the CTAs, you're passing on, you're, you're passing on the bulk of their results Yeah. So we uh, minus the high fees, right? Yeah. So we, we've been able to replicate, I, by our right. end, we've been able to replicate hundred percent of the pre-fee and pre-trading cost returns. And so if you look at what we've done over a long period of time, we do 400 basis points better than the a broad collection of managed futures hedge funds with daily liquidity in an ETF, an 85 basis point expense ratio, we tend to have equal or better drawdown characteristics. Um, but that being said, you know, the, you know, going back to Mike's point, I mean, if, if, if where, where I think we have the best mousetrap is if you decide, if you're a retail advisor and you say, I believe in managed futures as a category, and I want 5% of my portfolio in managed futures. Okay. What does that mean? Okay. Managed futures is not someone's trend model. It is not someone, it is a, that is the average yeah. returns of all the guys who do it, right? This is the equivalent of saying, I can't buy the S&P 500. I can't even buy the individual underlying stocks. My only choice is to buy a collection of guys who track who broadly invest in U.S. large cap stocks. So that's the only thing. So, um, so I believe that for those guys, what's been missing in the liquid alternative space is something where they can say, here's my 5% allocation. I have manager diversification. I have reasonable fees. It's in a client-friendly wrapper. What that then becomes is a benchmark plus product. Right. By, and the plus is only from cutting out fees. It's not from <clears> taking more risk. But the reason that's really important for an advisor is because their constraint generally is they can't fill a 5% bucket with six different funds. Yeah. There may not be, I don't know what the Canadian market looks like, there may not be six good managed futures funds, and then you get into all the netting and other problems that, 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 that Mike mentioned. So... Yeah, you, that, they can put you, you the, end up basically what, running what back into the same instead, problem happened, that there was before three years ago in Canada, where CTAs and, and and hedge funds were only really predominantly available to rich investors. But now that we've got this sort of this democratization sure. of, of of liquid alts in Canada and of course in the U.S., um, now you're you're solving the problem of of of, of dividing up. Uh, an allocation that could be a, you know, that's a fraction of your assets. But if you're not dealing with a, a you know, a $10 million portfolio or a hundred million dollar portfolio, um, you know, how are you going to split 50, you know, how are you going to split a hundred thousand dollars or $50,000 into six funds, right? On a million dollar portfolio, let's say 5% I, I think, is 50,000. I mean, yeah, yeah. Pe people won't do it. 
Right. And so, so what, what happened in the U.S. So, so the U.S., I, I wrote about this and Morningstar has written about this as well. The, 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 the central problem with the liquid alts market is that these are all products that somewhere had a good track record somewhere that generally, at least in the U.S. and in Europe, are launched with, with firms that have a whole multitude of products, which raises the question, if you think you've got 15 great liquid alt products, why don't you tell me which one you think will actually work? But but really, there's a whole series of single manager products at, at any given point, which a couple of them are doing well. And you've got these marketing teams and then force and go tell people that it wasn't luck, it was skill, and it's going to go on forever. And so the guy who's deciding, what do I do in my 5% managed futures allocation, historically has said, I'll just, they would look at the top five managed futures mutual funds. They would maybe throw out the one guy who had, you know, crazy vol, throw out the one guy who'd had bad numbers recently, and they'd pick one of the three in the middle. And so if you look at, so, you know, back in 2010 through 2015, the default, the obvious choice was AQR. And hundreds of thousands of, of, of portfolios ended up having a 5% or more allocation with a single manager fund with AQR because it had decent numbers. It had okay fees. It was big. It was established. It was the easy call. That's as crazy as saying, I want to be in... Um, uh, I want to, you know, add five percent to value stocks and picking that mid-cap E&P producer for a five percent allocation. That's not that's not diversification. That had the appearance of diversification. So what what happened to the advisors now is they've got this five percent allocation. They've told their clients that it's not only a great area, but they found the best guy in the area. And then a year later, it, it's ten percent below the benchmark. And so now this 5% allocation is a 30% problem in terms of their time. Mm-hmm. And what do you do? Do you get out? Do you replace it with a guy who's been doing better recently? Do you hold on? Well, essentially doubling down. Then another year later, it's down another 10% relative to the benchmark. And so the answer for a lot of people was they finally just said, I'm just going to get out of the whole space because it's easier to blame the space than my pick. And and that and then right. literally they were all out by the time 2020 rolled around and then 2021 when then managed futures picks up again. So our argument is that there have been very very few liquid alternative products that are built for a guy with a five or ten year asset allocation objective. And for that you need broad diversification across underlying funds and it has to be benchmark benchmark plus. I would I would add the the one point I would add there is it, it's for me that the just the five percent allocation is one of I need to know the vol of the underlying. Right, so if I'm buying the market and your vol is lower than the market, I've got certain real estate in my portfolio, and maybe a five percent piece of managed futures isn't going to give me the convexity that I want. So, I agree with all the comments generally. Then you have to start getting a little bit more specific as you drill down into what is it that you wanted to achieve. Well, I wanted managed futures to provide some bolstering of the portfolio in a credit in a crisis situation. Well, that's not 5% or if it's 5%, you know, you're going to be looking for a vol that's not not even reasonable. So you've, you've got to think about how am I going to get the suite of products that acts alternatively, i.e. has correlation to a traditional portfolio of maybe 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3. But then I've got to have the injection of the capital of the, of that of the force of that return be meaningful. And so if you've got 5% and 5 vol and your portfolio is down 50%, and that five vol thing is up 2%, it really didn't do anything. You still have a big headache. And so. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And that's why the only reason, I, so 
from an, when we built the our first portfolio, and it was this was designed to be kind of a, a broad kind of hedge fund solution, we had forty percent in managed futures. Right? If I could, so if I told you something has a two percent return, goes up ten to fifteen percent or ten to twenty percent in a bear market, and but you might be waiting seven years at two percent for that to happen, or seven years at one percent waiting for it to happen, it's very very hard to hold. If I said I'm going to get rid of 500 basis points of fees and expenses. You're sitting, so you're paid six percent while you're waiting for that to happen. Yeah. It's a completely different calculus. Uh, sure. From it, from an optimal perspective, you can easily get into 20 percent or more in a portfolio. I, the the just when I when I talk to advisors, I'm very aware of what are the realistic considerations mm-hmm. of their business, and and they. A lot of the guys that I talked to, I think the biggest compliment I got last year was when an advisor said he'd never met a PM who tried as hard to understand actually his business. And and it was really around around the fact that I could explain to him what we do, but he had to turn around and explain it to somebody. And we had to talk about the circumstances when he would be sitting down explaining, you know, what was going wrong and why it was going wrong and 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 what, what even meant by it going wrong. Um and so, so I think, you know, 5%, I think, is just a number that people use. It's not optimal from an asset allocation perspective. But if in 2008, you had a 5% allocation to managed futures and it was up 15%, and everything else was the sea of red, that, that, that small allocation can still be a sure. beacon of green for an advisor dealing oh, yeah. with clients yeah, no, who we, want to we sell We want everything. more than <laughs> you know? 5% you know, as managed futures purveyors of a, yeah. of a significantly differentiated product that is in particular adding mm-hmm. value um, in the last six months. And as uh, you know, I think you've mentioned earlier, Andrew, you know, these, these sort of regimes tend to last a decade and, you know, sometimes multiple decades. We've been in a, the tens, which were, sure. you know, largely very, uh, a very large tailwind mm-hmm. for more passive products, domestic U.S. Uh, 60, 40 being at the 99th percentile of sharp ratio is, you know, fairly significant outperformance over a decade. And things do tend to move around. I mean, the last time we got to this, it, you know, oil was at $9 a barrel, gold at 200 and the NASDAQ was at 5,000 and the NASDAQ didn't hit 5,000 for 14 years. Um, and those other things did very, very well. So, you know, part of part of diversification is, you know, having some stuff in your portfolio that's always killing it and then having something that's kind of killing you. And that's, you know, part of rebalancing is a wonderful tailwind at that point. Um, is there is there anything Absolutely. else that you're able to share with advisors and with me even on how you get folks across the line on moving towards these more lowly correlated you know, uh, strategies and then sticking with them. Is there any, any other kind of stories or analogies that you use that, that can help, you know, the advisor out there introduce managed futures or introduce long short or introduce these other little bit more, even though you're transparent, they are opaque to them. When they hear the NASDAQ, they're on CNBC and they watch whatever's going on in the market. They know kind of what their portfolio is doing, but they have no idea what's going on in their managed futures portfolio. It could be up a lot. It could be down a lot. Is there, how do you help with all of that? So I, th- I think, um, well, first of all, I, I think the conversation is a lot easier today than it was a year ago. Um, I, I, I wrote a paper in the beginning of 2021 uh, that was basically saying hedge funds think inflation really might be coming back, and here's why managed futures would be a good place for retail portfolios. <laughs> 
I mean, it was, yeah. that was, that was a crazy outrageous at the time. At, 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 at the time. <laughs> outrageous. And, and I, actually, I just put it up on yes, LinkedIn right. again today, and I was like, guys, F-Y-I. this one has aged well. Um, yeah, I think I think we're up 22%, and the right. uh, LQD is down 10% over that period of time. So, um, and, and then I wrote something last summer uh, about uh, how hedge funds became the new fixed income substitute. Um, so I, I think people are being taken right. by what's happening with 60-40 portfolios. Um, and uh, I, what people say about us, hopefully, that they say that our secret weapon is that I'm not a quant. That, that you know, like when I, I, was, I posted a LinkedIn thing on Managed Futures and all these like head managed futures luminaries chimed in and they're all talking about these incredibly technical terms. And I kind of responded and I was like, guys, managed futures should be really simple. Like it's, you know, you asked a question with, is it trend? Is it trend reversal? Is it this? Is it short term trend? It's our portfolio. When I look at it, it's kind of obvious. It's that, you know, it's that when interest rates start going up, we start shorting treasuries. It's not a surprise. We're not trying to, these guys aren't trying to mm-hmm. catch an inflection point. I mean, there are a few guys who try to you know, counter trend and things like that. But, you know, what, when gold is going up, we're going to be owning gold. If equities start going, we're now short equities. If equities keep going down, we're going to be short equities. I mean, it's not, it, people love to take these strategies and dress them up in incredibly complicated language that I think um, can undercut the ultimate messaging. What I would tell people about a strategy like Men of Futures is, is back the way I started, which is that we all have this bias that, you know, that if, if, if I think my house is worth, you know, $500,000 and then somebody tells me it's worth $400,000, my, my, my instinct is it's going to come back to 500, <laughs> not that it's going to go from 400 to 300 to 200 to 100. And, and so, you know, Here's a strategy that is a, it is a robot dog strategy. It looks at what's going on in the market and it just jumps into trades, but it does it in an intelligent way. It's not saying, oh, look, Bitcoin is up. I'm going to go 100% into Bitcoin. Oil is up. I'm going to go 100%. In, it, it is, there's an intelligent way of saying, I want some of this. The euro is going down. I want to short some of the euro. I think that, you know, it looks like that's going to keep continuing. Rates are going up. We're going to be positioned for different ways for the rates going up. Um, for rates going up. If, uh, uh, you know, if European stocks keep going down, we'll be short European stocks. And so I think when you, when you talk about it as a benchmark plus product, you take a lot of the advisor anxiety out of the, the equation. Because one, one expression we coined is that basically the benchmark, your, worst, your best friend or your worst enemy. And it's your best friend because none of us knows whether managed futures will be up 5% a year or down 5% a year over the next five years. But worst case scenario, it's down 5%. If we've cut out all fees and expenses, we don't have the netting issues that you've described, and we're down one when they're down five, the advisor can still frame that as, look, this is diversification, because if that's happening, then probably everything else is shooting through the moon. And um, on the other hand, if managed futures if your benchmark when you're sitting across from the client is up 5% and your guy's down 10, that's when that's the nightmare scenario because the sugar high of having picked a guy who you thought was the best in the space 
it now turns into the you know multi-year hangover of going back and revisiting and what do you do and what do you do. So the idea of getting people to be longer-term investors in this space is a clearer narrative about what it's supposed to yeah. do. You know what's really what's, it's, what's funny? I'm just, you know, I, I to me like when we're like based on what you just said, Andrew, which is which is that you know managed futures should be a very simple discussion. Um, it just struck me that you know this is exactly what investors think their advisors should be doing, right? Like. One day, you know, like this, this last little period, gold is up. And then you get a phone call from your client. Your client says, oh, gold's up. Should we be, should we be buying some of mm -hmm. it? And, you know, one way or another, you have an opinion on that. Either it's yes or no, or mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know. And, 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 or nothing happens, right? And, and so the client is like, oh, okay, well, Pierre doesn't know. <laughs> right? But, 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 but what? With it, but what I'm hearing, like what I understand well, from I, the managed futures it, discussion that we're having, is that if you have that in your portfolio, you don't have to consider the question and then the, the decision to do that or not to do it. The managed futures program will do it for you because it's trend following. I I, I like I like that explanation. I would say I would say a big caveat in that everyone yeah. who likes what we do is building models for their clients. And, and, and the whole point of building models, like there was this whole revolution of, of advisors building model portfolios. Like 15 years ago, if you went an advisor in the U.S., they would wave around a, you know, an Apple analyst report yeah. and tell you they're going to buy Apple stock for you and do tax loss harvesting and buy you know, these various bonds. After the great financial crisis, everyone, um, every major wealth manager put their advisors to use model portfolios. And it was to get clients yeah. to focus on the overall portfolio, not the sleeve, and then to get them to focus on client acquisition, client management, et cetera, et cetera. And to make you know, make them make them better at what they do well, not what they don't do and take them away from what they don't do well. The in the model building world, you care about how that managed futures is a bucket. And what you care about is how managed futures as a category does over the next 10 years. And if you do as well or slightly better than that, that's very different than that conversation is very different yeah. than the guy yeah. who is expecting to be tactical and nimble. Um, because. Yeah. Just, and I'm, I'm, I'm just coming at it from the perspective of from, the client from, from, themselves, from like the, the, the layperson who says, oh, tech stocks are down. Should we get out? Gold is up. Should we get in? You know, and, yep. and because they're they're reacting to the daily news that they read or CNBC or whatever's happening. And so just, I mean, I'm just going back thinking, you know, my, my advisor days when clients would phone up, you know, on, on, on any given day and ask questions like that. And you had to give them an answer and you had to make a decision. It can be even a little bit insidious and, and worse than that. If you look at the model yeah. portfolio world and you look at competing for those clients, if you would have added five, 10, 15% of managed futures, whether it was market-based, the best performer, the worst performer, it doesn't matter. That shit was a yeah. drag on your portfolio. And the guy who did 60, 40 would look at, would have his model portfolio without any managed futures, probably cut his emerging market. I mean, we did a, a piece on emerging markets, the best emerging ma markets manager has underperformed the worst U.S. equity manager by 
Well, why is that? I mean, it's obvious, mm -hmm. right? When I say it, it's like, well, it's been a wasteland in one area and it's been, you know, great in the other. How could you even keep up? You can't based on your benchmark constraints. So now we extend this to the world of model building and the world of competing for clients as advisors go out and talk to people mm -hmm. and the thoughtful advisors are saying you should have a little bit of this managed futures or these yeah. other diversifiers in your portfolio have paid and that diversification has dwindled and we are now at maybe it's we've we've reached peak 60 40 i'm not sure um, but we can see, as Andrew points out, in the hedge fund positioning, that hedge fund positioning towards inflationary assets happened a while ago. You know, maybe we should just give a little knock on the door for the advisors. Hey, you know, it's time to start to embrace this diversity in your portfolio. If you don't have any exposure to these other unique strategies that could perform for a decade, now's the time to really start giving this some serious consideration, regardless of how you want to do it. Andrew's products, my products, uh, the, the whole field, competitive products. And you, and you shouldn't be holding really. out for peak 60, 40. I mean, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be waiting. No, for... no, not at all. You should always be diversified. <laughs> no, but, 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 right? but that's the whole know, point. The bias <laughs> is that, you know, oh, it's not over yet, yeah. you know. It's so tough. Yeah. The firms themselves have changed their model portfolios. In 2007, I don't think that I saw a model portfolio at a firm that didn't include emerging markets or quality value stocks sure. or even commodity ETFs. Fast forward to this past year, yeah. I don't see very many of those things in there. We, I mean, we've gone from minus $35 on oil to $130. Just to Andrew's point earlier, the commodities can go a lot further than you might think they can go in any direction. Well, I think I think the other thing that's, that's really interesting, and uh, I'm curious to see if, if, if it's affecting you in Canada as well, is that you know the, the asset management industry is an incredibly weird industry. And I actually started to work on, on curricular material for Harvard Business School around how weird it is because you have an industry that was a phenomenally profitable industry without a lot to show for it in terms of adding value for multiple decades. And then Vanguard comes out of the, out of the blue and Vanguard's essentially a nonprofit. And so you have Vanguard pricing things at zero and I fear it's, it's going to compete with, with, with Vanguard essentially at zero. But, but every time Vanguard raises a dollar, they just lower all their fees. Meanwhile, you've got the rest of the industry here is still tens of trillions of dollars kind of resisting and fighting as they get kind of dragged down to it. Well, where these guys can be cheapest yeah. is around 60, 40 portfolios. The deepest, most liquid, most easily indexable market. And those guys in turn were also competing. Like I, I remember getting asked by um, a large insurer in the US to see if we could build a product for them for their target date fund portfolios. And they were losing mandates over two base points of expenses. And so I think, you know, there is this kind of point where you're like, great, well, I've saved lots and lots and lots on management fees and I have the cheapest mm -hmm. portfolio in the world. Like take robo-advisors in the U.S. I mean, talk about the growth of cheap 60-40 portfolios and they're all just variants of the same thing. And, and you know, part of our whole business thesis is that in the next 10 years, it's all going to change. And when it starts to change, yep. it, you know, it'll be the pile-on effect. I, I wrote a, a joking um, uh, 
uh, a post on social media where I said, I'm just, I'm waiting for the yeah, moment I mean, where, where we have hoarding in, uh, in managed futures. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like, like Andrew, Andrew you, you've, you've recently, in the last, I guess in the last year or so, you've, you've been uh, quoted as saying that we're, you know, you, you foresee us entering a, a new sort of golden era for hedge funds. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was right on 2020 and wrong on 2021, right. but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. No, yeah, era. <laughs> yeah, I'll call it a, a decade. decade. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Era, yes. Okay. So yeah. what's giving you the confidence in that? Uh, so, yeah, thanks. Like, I think the, well, what is the, it that you're... It, 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 it's, every, it's everything that you're saying. It's that, it's that emerging markets have been, you know, bad, 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 even worse. I mean, look at it last year. I mean, who expected China to step on the neck of the tech industry and the real estate industry and then have a COVID outbreak? I mean, you look at the tech sector in China is down 75% in a year. I mean, it is just, it is mind boggling. Um, but that being said, you know, they, there will be tremendous opportunities around that. There will be, whether it's on the equity long short side, um, you know, when equity long short managers generated more alpha in 2020 than the entire preceding decade. Because they got the re-leveraging. They went into, into the crisis with a tech bias. They got the recovery early because every epidemiologist's worth of salt was also retained by hedge funds to try to figure out when vaccines were coming and when. And they bet, and as a result of that, they bet on the recovery trade. And so when you had this big swing back into value, they were there waiting for it. And so 2021 turned into, was actually one of the worst, interestingly. Um, but, but not to say that they're going to get everything right, you know, but, but that just the, there are going to be so many more fish in the pond over the next decade. And that's where there will be different ways to capitalize on it. You guys, I'm sure will find lots and lots of different ways to identify things that have been historically cheap and, or, or interesting to invest in. I like hedge funds because I think on average, they're going to find, you know, when I talked about the, the, you talked about emerging markets in the 2000s. It wasn't a it wasn't a hidden trade. It was just that these guys went into it with with, with much greater scale and size in their portfolios, and they got in early, and they and they and they rode it when the S and when emerging markets were outperforming the S and P by thirty percent a year. Um, so I think you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of opportunities like that. Sometimes so they'll reverse and get ugly, but sorry, go, but on average, yeah, it, it should be a great massive, decade. That emerging market. <clears> I was just gonna say, sorry, um, sorry, sorry, where are you seeing the most uptake? In terms of your your two main uh, your well your main your main products your main ETFs who who are the buyers of of uh, DBEH and DBMH is it DBMH yeah DB, DBMF pardon me so I uh, DBMF yeah. um, so all the interest is on the managed future side and and I mean equity long short is candidly a defensive equity allocation it it. It's got less equity risk. If you do really well, you're going to do 200 basis points of excess returns. Managed futures, you, you line it up against equities, and we've got zero beta since we started and eight or 900 basis points of annualized alpha. It, it's where all the diversification bang for the buck is. It, um, you know, what we do from a fee disintermediation perspective moves the dial a lot more. The other things that we also manage are, um, our portfolios that combine those two and where you combine them. And in Europe, we have a product 
uh, that we manage for a big at the manager called FDI that's among the top performing multi-strategy uh, uh, usage funds since we launched because that's where we combine managed futures and replication of equity long short and relative value and event driven all into one package. And that goes back to the idea that there is a large group of investors who don't want to worry within their hedge fund bucket in their asset allocation model. They want a low cost, client friendly, one stop solution that does 200 basis points a year better than the benchmark. And they want to buy it, right. put it across all of their, you know, portfolios, as you say, below a certain size, um, not the $100 million guys, not even the $10 million guys with the smaller clients, right. and then just use it as their allocation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I can see why. But, you know, look, I mean, there are, I mean, there are, I, I'm, yeah, there are a lot of things we don't do, right? I mean, it's like there are, and, and, and we don't, you know, when, even when talk, people talk about DBMF, if commodities go straight up, you could have more commodities than we are, than we will ever yeah. give you in that portfolio. You know, I mean, you know, in our in our European portfolios where we can't own uh, gold and oil, we're long the Canadian dollar and long the Aussie dollar. Long being being long the Canadian dollar probably wouldn't do much for for uh, for your clients. But the um, uh, it it um, it, it I, I think you know the key is to be very very focused on what it is you're trying to achieve. And, and what we're trying to achieve is balancing, I want exposure to this hedge fund strategy. I'm, I have an asset allocation model. I want something to fill the bucket without getting me into trouble. And so some people say it's like, it's like the sleep at night version of investing in hedge funds. Some people say it's, it's, it, you know, it's sort of the asset allocator's dream. Right. To, but again, we're talking about people who already have an asset allocation model who are looking to fill a bucket and, and to fill it with a, and, and so all of our products have been built with that person in mind. Do you ever find that the, uh, the managed futures moniker gets in the way of, uh, interest? All, all the time. Um, it, I mean, some people call it CTAs in the U S people don't, I mean, it, like, a lot of people that 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 initially, when the ETF was small, I would talk to people. They didn't know what a futures contract was, and they didn't know, therefore, what managed futures meant. Um, um, that's I, what I'm I was going to say. Why don't you call it something? You know, why, did, why, didn't, why don't you call <laughs> it something else? Because <laughs> um, I think the, uh, you know, when it comes to futures, you know, people start thinking about Randolph and Mortimer, right? I, and that I. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say the the uptake that we get from we get uptake from sophisticated advisors, you know, and 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 most of them. No, obviously it's not an issue, but 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 if you're trying to introduce in, introduce the idea into a more mainstream, uh, you know, uh, a cohort of the market, uh, and, and to you know lay clients, lay lay people to to uh, the average client, um, at first. Obviously, it's the advisor's job to to take up the responsibility, the mantle of of educating their clients on what exactly a managed futures, uh, what managed futures are. But I guess what I'm getting at is that is that at the outset, uh, that terminology can can confound the activity, right? It can it can actually get in the way of the activity itself. Oh, even at at the term hedge fund. Um, I mean, I think I think you know. So what's interesting about about so one of the things that's interesting or fun about my job, I would say, is that when I talk to an advisor, I have no idea where the conversations go. 
Like there's no there's no canned pit about this. I need to understand what they do, what their clients are like. I spoke to a guy earlier today, you know, most of his clients, they have full discretion over client portfolios. There's not a lot of um, communication with clients about why they're putting something into the portfolio versus versus something else. Right? He has a huge advantage in terms of being able to build the portfolio because the term managed features probably never makes it back to his clients. It's probably, a, you know, this is in as a fixed income hedge or something like that. Um, uh, for the client, for advisors who... Yeah. have to explain things on a line item by line item basis. Managed futures is hard. It's hard to explain. It's quantitative. It it you know, it it's easier to say, here's a guy who picks cheap stock. You know, things that are worth less than they're trading at. People can understand that language more. And it also arms you with with a defense that, oh well it went down. We bought it at twenty but it's at fifteen right now. Well, we don't want to get out now because it's even cheaper than it was. You know, as opposed to maybe it wasn't worth twenty in the first place. It's like an easy narrative around it. Managed futures is really hard on that. It's it's well, you know, we invested in a guy who was short term trend, and then he just got whipsawed six times in a row, and he's down fifteen percent. Um, so I think I think what what I try to do is understand the person on the other side and what kind of what what are their real actual business considerations, and if they'll share that with me, then then we just really talk about right. it. You know, how if I was sitting in their shoes, how would I? try to explain it to people. Yeah. Some people, it's as simple as it's oh, an inflation yeah. hedge. I think it starts there. The, you know, the, it, it, the regime yeah. shift that, that I would say most people aren't prepared for isn't just the inflation, it's the inflation volatility. So we have now inflation, but the volatility around the inflation, that, that variance around the mean has been exceedingly low since 1990. AHL Mann put out a paper on this, which I think is about 1.3%. And, and historically before that, it was like 5.5%. So it's a, almost a factor of three times larger. Mm. That has all kinds of negative implications for risk premiums on equities and bonds. Very significant ones. And it also has negative implications on their correlations. Like the 1970s saw stocks and bonds correlated because of the inflationary environment. Correlation means you are not getting that zigzag benefit of uh, negative correlation that stocks and bonds have enjoyed. And so you're going to see your 60-40 portfolio yep. move more violently. What is the thing that can solve that? Mm -hmm. Well, exposure to commodities. Now, the challenging thing is even in the 70s, when commodities compounded at 14% real and stocks and bonds did negative real, there was still a three-year period in there where mm -hmm. your portfolio of commodities on a market cap basis was down 37%. Trend followers who were in that weren't down 37%. Risk parity type portfolios that allocated on a risk-adjusted, on a, on a risk-weighted basis to commodities did not experience that. So it's it's not just you know a dumb allocation, as Andrew says. I mean, you've got to think about this through the portfolio construction lens. And then, you know, an advisor that we spoke to the other day, just to add some, some color, they wanted to actually bury the managed futures side of it into an overall <laughs> portfolio, cloaking it, um, obscuring it, basically saying yeah. the client doesn't need mm -hmm. to see it because we're going to have to answer questions about it. And the behavioral vulnerabilities of the clients wanting to sell the thing that's not working rather than to rebalance into the thing that is not working because it's had a low period of a period of low returns which is behaviorally more optimal, 
this is the extent some very thoughtful advisors are going yeah. to to make sure they have allocations across these different types of managers. And I think this is probably what Andrew's clients in Europe with the usage funds were going for too. They don't want to see yeah. the line items. <laughs> oh, no question. Yeah, no, it, 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 look, I actually like the idea of yeah. combining. I mean, we have these two ETFs. I actually like the idea of combining them because I want something, again, it's, it's not a scientific analysis, but I think if the more equity markets do really well, I feel confident that the equity long short guys probably it's probably going to be an environment where he's doing better they're doing better than than on the managed future side i mean i think i think you know i think going back to your point about um you know communication with clients yeah. and stuff i think i think there is a i found that there's a lot of power in anecdotes and so last year we were towards the japanese yen and the japanese yen was going down right that Going, you know, if the client had a five percent allocation in it, and this was not going to save them in terms of what they were doing, but it was very useful in terms of having a concrete example of of, of, a, of an exposure you're not going to get elsewhere. Like if the Japanese, you know, Japan hasn't grown in a long time, it it they're never going to raise rates in Japan because they're never going to have inflation in Japan for all these different reasons. That that actually was not a a difficult argument to say to a retail to 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 the end client, but it was really just it was it was it was having something tangible, almost like if you said with a a guy who is picking stocks. Oh, he but he's you know he's buying the stock at at sixteen dollars, and his analysis says it's worth twenty five. Yeah, that it's it's powerful. It's a, it's a powerful story that makes it tangible for the client of what you're trying to do. When you say when you when you take managed futures away from beta, alpha, you know, non correlation and other things like that, it, it I to me it's about it's about stories. And so around the end you know, when I wrote this thing about the inflation trade and people were saying, Well, how do I describe to you? I said, Look, if if inflation hits, it's most guys are not gonna have things in their portfolio that will directly make money from it. Now you and I know that that means shorting treasuries. But, but you can frame that with your clients in a way that 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 takes that and and, and frames yeah. a story around it. That if inflation going up, these guys will be long inflated, whatever that means. And so I think I think a lot of it is 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 finding a way to um, uh, craft narratives around it. Right now we are short the euro. That's not a hard trade to explain to people, given what's going on. Yeah. It's not working today. Oh my! But the the capital flight <laughs> yeah. story is is uh, it was, it was working until goes today. hand in hand with that, right? So the exodus. Well, and I, I think the other thing for advisors yeah. that but we'll I think, often I think it's hard. Is, I mean, I think you know, there's we're trading eighty five different futures and currency markets, and so those are just things that you don't have access to. And then we're looking at them through the lens of being long or short. And one of the ways in which uh, to take advantage of inflation is to be short bonds or short the bond complex. So how many advisors can actually execute a short in the, in, in the bond markets and efficiently? They can't. Um, how many can trade the grain complex? Can't. I mean, you know, you could maybe get away with a long gold position in the metal side of things, maybe have some silver and, and that might be acceptable in the current client zeitgeist, depending on what country you're in. Um, but these these things are just significant diversifiers that 
um, come to play when you have an inflationary uh, volatility market. And it seems like uh, uh, I think both Andrew and I are trying to convey that regime shift is occurring. Uh, the the deglobalization and onshoring of supply chains, that's a major shift from 1989 and the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the massive globalization that we encountered and then interest rates falling for 40 years. All of these things seem to be at a, a moment of change in regime. And that change in regime and then change in inflationary and growth dynamics and liquidity dynamics has significant and long-term implications for how asset prices behave. And so this isn't, you know, this isn't your father's market. It might not even be your grandfather's market. It might be your great-grandfather's market. You had, you had me at, at uh, giving you access to things you don't have access to. <laughs> right. There you go. I mean, I, I think also, I mean, this is where it, again, depends. But I also, yeah. you know, I wrote something for family offices, which is basically why every value investor should have managed futures. And, and it was it was because, you know, I know a lot of family offices who everybody that they invest in has a value bias in one way, shape or form. And yeah. well, they did. I mean, they, they, they probably all have a tech bias at some point, um, you know, today. But but but, you know, that that's the real diversification is, as you say, is somebody doing something you aren't comfortable with, you don't like in some fashion. And, and so to me, you know. People ask me about the portfolio and how we're positioned. And in one of our portfolios, we're you know we went very very short Europe over the past couple of days. That makes me cringe because that just makes me feel like you know it's because I feel I always feel myself personally I always feel like the market gods are waiting for <laughs> our portfolios to take a big position. Yeah. So they can yeah. you know they can they can you know bring their boot down from from market heaven and stomp on us. Uh, uh, but but, you know, there are a lot of times where I've seen positions like that and they've worked and it, it never something that I would have done on my own. So people often say, you know, well, do you ever override the positions? Do you, you know, and my answer is no, I don't override them because I don't think I would be more right than they are. And an advisor shouldn't think about overriding them because the whole point is, you know, when the yen has gone all the way down like this. And then they're, you know, shorting the end, shorting the end, shorting the end, expecting to go down further. And that there's real value in that in a portfolio. And I think back to your point is when we do have these regime shifts, you know, why do things keep moving? It's because we all, we get this very, very tight consensus. Last year, I mean, it's incredible. End of August, yeah, 65% of economists expected no rate hikes this year in the U.S., and then and then they start moving and they start piling yeah. on and somebody says two and then somebody says Nine. three and then Jimmy yeah, Diamond says crazy. six and then yeah. Bank of America now we're back well. to two again yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so and, and you know and, and so back you know back to the trading places thing you know that's kind of the the typical you know pit mentality of emotions building on it and and I think the I think the best thing you know the best trades or opportunities that people have found over time they're often you know, it's like Warren Buffett says, or uh, Charlie Munger says, you know, it should be blindingly obvious why you're doing it. You know, you shouldn't have to have four decimal places to figure out why you're doing something. And 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 I think, yeah. to me, right now, managed futures Absolutely. is blindingly well, that obvious, is a great spot given the world that we're in. 
put a pin in this. We've been at it about Amazing. an hour and a half, but that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mike that drop. Was, <laughs> that was an amazing discussion. Amazing conversation. <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah. 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 Listen, thank you. Thank well, you Andrew, guys so also much. Yes, let everyone know where to, they can uh, find you. To, the specifics uh, like your Twitter handle, the website, um, you know, all the stuffs where people can dig in, find some of those web pap white papers you were talking about all along the call. Sure. So everyone, everyone, first of all, I, I, I publish a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So just reach out to me over LinkedIn. Uh, it's Andrew Beer, B-E-R, like the drink. My company is called Dynamic Beta Investment. Um, and then you'll see kind of a steady stream of things that are going on in the hedge fund space, occasionally, you know, tossing rocks or or, or uh, at, at, at different canons of the industry. Um, and then uh, on Twitter, uh, it's Andrew D. Beer 1. I think it is, but in any case, it's the same. Uh, 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 and then we have a website, www.dynamicbeta.com, where we do public research. Um, despite my listing a couple of articles, I publish things relatively rarely because I only write things when I think I have something excellent, uh, uh, interesting to say. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. I, I want to say that was that was very enlightening. I, I know I said it at the beginning, it was going to be an enlightening and insightful conversation, but I think that's an understatement. That was that was amazing. Thank you guys very much for having me on. It was it was a pleasure. And uh, I hope we'll have an opportunity to do this again in a couple of years talking about uh, year three of the great regime shift. Oh, yeah, just let's just all remind ourselves when we're really popular that we're near the end. Bye.